Okay, good morning and greetings to all of you. Looks like I might have had my microphone muted for the prayer, so I'm sorry for those of you at home. We are in uh, David Scares Christology, the chapter on resurrection. We are going to, we left off on page 95. We're going to pick up on page 94, though, just to regain a little bit of the context. What Scare has been showing us is over and against those recent theologians of the past couple hundred years that have denied the physical resurrection, Jesus himself in his preaching and teaching. And we should make, it, we should make the case also and say, also the Old Testament, also the Old Testament, uh, teaching us of the, of the death and resurrection of the Messiah, of the Christ, Jesus himself coming and proclaiming his own death and resurrection, and then the witness of the evangelists, the four gospel writers, that Christ was crucified and raised. And then we've been looking at the Pauline evidence. So if we pick back up on 94, just simply the last paragraph on page 94, we'll get Scare's treatment of Paul's treatment of the resurrection. Though the Pauline epistles, Scare writes, see the resurrection of Jesus as an essential article of faith, they do not contain reports of the resurrection itself, with the exception of 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 8, where Paul lists the witnesses to the resurrection. In the six, six categories, Peter, the twelve, the 500 brethren, James, all the apostles, and finally Paul himself. Jesus is described as appearing. The term is used of those who come from the heavenly realm and are seen on earth, as was the case with Moses and Elijah in the transfiguration. At the moment of his resurrection, Jesus' soul and body were united, and he was seen as glorified in the realm of quote-unquote, invisible things, referring to that category given us in the Creed. During the 40 days from the moment of glorification at the resurrection until his ascension, Jesus appeared on earth very much in the sense that Moses and Elijah did at the transfiguration. During this period, he did not reassume an ordinary earthly existence. His walking, talking, and eating with his disciples were done, or excuse me, were not done for his sake or as necessary parts of his existence, but to demonstrate to them that he was no longer dead. So again, what we're exploring is this theme that Scare uh, pointed out for us back on page 94 in that first full paragraph but this theme that when Christ is raised from the dead, he is not raised in an earthly mode of presence or mode of being as he previously existed among us in an earthly mode of presence or, or earthly mode of being. The eating and drinking uh, were not of necessity after his death and resurrection, but were rather a demonstration of the continuity of his person. It is in fact me. I am in fact literally physically risen from the dead. I'm not eating and drinking out of necessity, nor am I partaking in this old earthly manner and mode of life. Uh, but I am here to uh, 
bear witness and show the veracity and truth of my resurrection before I ascend into heaven, that you may believe and that along with you all other people may believe that I am in fact the Christ, the Savior of the world. All right, so there's the, there's the point in the broader context of Scare's writing. We're wending our way toward a Luther quote that proves and demonstrates this very thing. So Scare continues, his resurrection does not involve at least, excuse me, his resurrection does involve at least a resuscitation of a dead body, but it was more than this. The term resuscitation is inadequate to explain what the resurrection involves, since the ordinary bodily functions are no longer operative in the way they were before his death. Luther's distinction between the temporal and transient characteristics may be helpful. Here, Luther. Jesus now sits at the right hand of God and eats, drinks, sleeps, sorrows, suffers, or dies no more in eternity, just as will happen to us when we pass from this life into the other life, 1 Corinthians 15. These are temporal and transient idiomata, which generally means like characteristics or attributes. But the natural ones remain, for instance, that he has body and soul, skin and hair, flesh and blood, marrow and bones, and all the limbs of an ordinary human. So as best as I can do to put this in plain English, we remain, I mean, as it goes for Christ, so it goes for us. We remain, even after the resurrection, true human beings with flesh and skin and hair and eyeballs and all the rest. But we're no longer bound to the necessity of this world where we have to eat or die or sleep or die or that kind of thing. Again, it's eternal life, so there is no, there is no death, and so there is no ultimate contingency. Maybe the only critique you could level at Luther, and he's simply not speaking to this point, is that as the scriptures testify, we will indeed eat and drink and eat and drink sumptuously and wonderfully, that, that feast. Uh, of, of aged wines and, and fatted meats, fine foods of every kind that, uh, of which Isaiah speaks, of which really the great wedding feast of Revelation portents. So uh, with those things in mind, which Luther would by no means deny, his point is simply this. There's continuity. It is truly these bodies that will taste of those heavenly fruits and receive eternal life. It is truly these bodies, and yet our mode of existing in these bodies will be so utterly different that it's almost impossible to describe. It's almost impossible to describe. We will be, we will be more, I, I like C.S. Lewis on this, you know, we will be more real, more substantive than we are now. Do you remember is it in the great divorce where the people get off the bus, the dam get off the bus, yeah. and the grass of heaven hurts their feet because it's too real and they're too, uh, too spirit-like, too wayfish, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. We will, we will think with such clarity and perceive with such reality in heaven that at this existence on earth will seem nightmarish and delusional and like a, like a fever fit. Parts made sense and parts didn't. And thank God it's over because now we see clearly, and uh, now we are as God intended us to be, and now, in fact, we have, we have actually become human. We, have, we are now bearers of the image of God in the fullest extent. That's the trajectory upon which we are on. So 
continuity and discontinuity. And as long as we think in both of those terms, we're going to land in the right sort of the right sort of place. Don't you get that also in the last battle when you know they're going up into the hills and they're going, they didn't make it. They find at the end, hey, they're looking at the new London, and it says this is better than the old thing. Oh, maybe so. Maybe so. I'd have to think about that. The comment was in regard to the last battle in the in the new London. Yeah. I need to go reread those texts. It's been some years, particularly the last battle. I, yeah. So thank you for that. Worth considering. All right. So after the Luther quote, Scare continues. The resurrected body is what Paul calls the spiritual body. First Corinthians fifteen forty. Paul is not referring to some sort of disembodied spirit, but an actual human body which is taking, taken into the realm of God. That's a great definition of what a spiritual body is, a physical human body taken into the realm of God. If you've seen Star Wars at the end where, where you have the force ghosts and they look like their bodies but they don't have any bodies, that is not a good analogy of a spiritual body. <laughs> that, is, that is not a good analogy. Um, that, that's probably a better analogy for what a disembodied soul looks like uh, or, or would act like. All of this being quite speculative, quite hypothetical. But when we're talking about spiritual bodies, we're talking about these physical bodies elevated, taken up, taken into the realm of God so that they exist in the fullness of what they were meant to, to be. I mean, there's this, there's this beautiful thing. Like, it's completely contrary to the Gnosticism of our age, where the Gnosticism of our age would have us be ashamed of even having a body, period. You know, superior beings aren't chained to bodies, that kind of thing. And the sort of arrogance of a disembodied spirit is a higher being. In heaven, that's just simply not the case. I mean, really, the new heavens and the new earth, at the end of all things, that's simply not the case. Um, we, we are blessed to have uh, control over physical and spiritual faculties as human beings. And in our full glory, to be man, to be man in God's image, the fullness of God's creation when human beings come into full maturity, uh, there's, there's not anything to be ashamed of whatsoever. It's, it's going to be incredibly glorious. That's what the Bible teaches all the time. The, re, the revealing of the sons of glory, for example, in, in uh, Romans. And that this whole world, this is a fascinating way of looking at it. This whole world is travailing as if in childbirth. You know, right before the baby comes, you know, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And right before the baby comes, it's worse of all. And then the baby comes and there's relief and there's joy and there's joy that's so great it blots out the sorrow. That's, I mean, how could you come up with a better analogy? So that's one way in which we can perceive what's going on in the world. The contractions are getting closer together. <laughs> the, the labor is, is great. The pain is increasing. And what that really means is the birthing of the sons of God is at hand. And that's us. I mean, and that's a beautiful way to think, too. Like this life and who we are right now is analogous to fetuses. A fetus to an adult is analogous to us in this womb, the womb of this life, and what we shall be when we are born into the fullness of being sons of God, sons of glory. So 
It's incredible things to look forward to, all because of Christ Jesus, all because of his love, all because of his death and resurrection. All right, well, let's pick back up with scare. Again, we're on page 95, and we've just started the second paragraph. We're on the second sentence. Christ's body was one glorified by the Holy Spirit as creator. Hence, it was not simply, quote, spiritual body, unquote, um, but capital S spiritual body. That the resurrection was the work of the entire Trinity is made clear in several passages. Paul's argument that Christians have the spirit of the Father who raised Jesus from the dead presupposes that God brought about the resurrection of Jesus by the Spirit. Uh, quote, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit which dwells in you. Romans 8, 11. A verse that's well worth slowing down and meditating on and mulling over. <clears throat> Scare's going to help make some of the connections for us. Those whom Jesus raised from the dead were resuscitated, but not glorified as he was in his resurrection. There's a key distinction. Think on Lazarus quite concretely. Lazarus was resuscitated, but he didn't receive the fullness of the resurrection. The Holy Spirit given to us in baptism, sustained in us by the preaching of the word, is the down deposit of what is to come. And what is to come, the fullness of what's to come, is the spiritual resurrection, the resurrection of our bodies, not so that we're merely resuscitated, but so that we transcend and become something altogether new. Paradoxically, again, the same but new. Continuity, discontinuity. And that's really scarce point. Scare continues, Jesus' resurrection from the dead anticipates and participates in the general resurrection of the dead on the last day, and on that account, the resurrected Jesus is called by Paul, quote, the first fruits of them who have fallen asleep, end quote. And that's a quote from 1 Corinthians 15, 20. His resurrection has two dimensions. It shares in ordinary time as a historical event and participates in the end times as an eschatological reality. So in one sense, it is absolutely essential, of course, that we understand the resurrection of Jesus as a historical event that took place 2,000 years ago. Absolutely essential. And yet we cannot simply stop there. That's only one side of the coin. That r resurrection 2,000 years ago is so transcendent, transcendental, so creation-altering that the end of the earth, the resurrection of our bodies, the new heavens and the new earth, literally the earth itself and the heavens themselves dying and rising again in him, all of this takes place 2,000 years ago. 
in a very real sense uh, and, and is simply being revealed and manifested uh, unto us. So those are the two different facets. You can speak of the historical event on the one side of the coin, on the other side of the coin, the eschatological, the end times, which here you can see that really the profundity and nebulous nature of the word eschatological doesn't simply mean end times. The fullness, the fullness um, of the spiritual reality. All right, Scare continues. The evangelists make it clear that the one who is raised from the dead is identical with the historical Jesus who was crucified. But with the historical identification of the resurrected one as Jesus of Nazareth, the evangelists indicate that the new age, when Satan is conquered, sin disappears, and the dead are raised, has begun. Very well said. Continuity and discontinuity. It's the same Jesus of Nazareth that's risen, but in such a way that now all things are, are new and are being made new. The Jesus' re resurrected body was back to what Adam and Eve were? In the, in the garden. Mm, great question. Great question. Did so the question need, for those of... Mm, yeah. I don't know. Great question. Great question. Yeah, so for the sake of those listening online, when the question was essentially this. Yeah. When Jesus was raised from the dead in his body on the third day, did he become as Adam and Eve were before the fall into sin? Yeah. Uh, in many ways, the answer to that question is yes. But in many other ways, the answer to that question is no. Um, okay? So in, what's, in what sense, yes. And here I'm drawing on the te teachings of Irenaeus and everybody who followed him in the early church, which was practically everybody on this question, right up until Luther in his Genesis lectures, who follows this very same train of thought. Um, maybe it would be better to frame it like this. When Adam and Eve were created in the garden, they were created, the church fathers tell us, as infants. Now, not in the way that we think, as being little babies crawling around, um, but as being full-fledged human beings and adults of age, of maturity enough to produce offspring. They were, as in, in, terms of, in terms of their identity of what it means to be human, they were but infants. In other words, the original view, the original view is that God made Adam and Eve good, but not perfect. And Adam and Eve were going to have progeny, and their progeny were going to grow with them. And they would ascend and grow into maturity, be translated, not die, but be translated into this spiritual mode of existence. So even where there's no sin, there's no curse, there's no death, the idea was still that there was a transition, a graduation from the earthly mode of being into this spiritual and heavenly mode of being. Make sense? Yeah. Now what sin did, what sin did was cut us off from that. So that now, now like plants that were destined to grow into, you know, like a, like a seed that sprouts up and is destined to grow into a full stock of corn and bear much fruit, right as it started growing out of the ground, it immediately dies and withers and falls away. Okay. And what Christ does, what Christ does in his resurrection is takes the human race and restores life back to us. 
I mean, in a very real sense, he becomes the new seed of the human race that falls into the earth and dies and grows up and we grow up with him. We are all going into that state of uh, perfection, not just goodness, but perfection or telos of the human race. Okay, so then just to answer the question a little more concretely, um, when Jesus is raised, he's everything Adam and Eve were, but much more. He has their innocence, he has their full and true humanity, but whereas we began by saying Adam and Eve in the garden were infants, again, not the way we conceive of infants, spiritual infants, Jesus is raised like they are, but spiritually mature, having received the new heavenly mode of being, whereas Adam and Eve in perfection merely had the earthly mode of being. Yeah, or I should say goodness to keep my terms straight, but great question, Bob, great question. Okay, let's simply jump back into the text on page 96, where Scare has subtitled this section, The Value and Necessity of the Resurrection. Looks like we are cruising along toward the end of this chapter, and that's, that's good. That's good. Okay, he begins with a quotation from the Large Catechism, Article 4. Uh, from Luther. These two parts being dipped under the water, there's the first part, and emerging from it, the second part, indicate the power and effect of baptism, which is simply the laying off of the old Adam and the resurrection of the new man, both of which actions must continue in us our whole life. So death and resurrection happening to us our whole life and in really a rather progressive way such that the final death portends to the final resurrection. We are, we are growing in death until the moment of you know, ultimate temporal death. And we're practicing the resurrection up until that moment of ultimate resurrection, re- resurrection into the spiritual mode of being. Of course, ultimately completed in the resurrection. It's one of the things that's so fun about baptism. You can talk about baptism in so many different ways that seem contradictory, and yet they're all exactly right. I mean, in one sense, baptism is a completed and done action. Like Romans 6, we've been buried, we've been so united with Christ, we've been buried with him in a death like his, that we also might rise with him in a resurrection like his. So the buried, and thus that we walk in newness of life, like completed action that we might be raised with him, future action. And even baptism, you know, is sort of, isn't it in one of our hymns that baptism now in death completes us or something like that? And that's true because one half of baptism is completed at our death. That part of us that's drowning the old Adam and that's putting the old Adam to death, as soon as we die, baptism is in that sense complete. It's because baptism is a continual drowning of the old Adam, and when we die, that's the only thing that dies, that part of us which we want dead anyway. (laughs) And so baptism is complete in death. But there's another side of the coin, isn't there? Because baptism isn't ultimately complete until we also rise in our bodies on the last day. It's just wonderful. That's true for communion, too, because the final and ultimate fulfillment of communion 
is the resurrection of the body and the participation of humanity with God in our bodies. Remember what the scriptures say, the body is made for the Lord. There is a really profound mystery hidden in those words. And by mystery, I just mean inexhaustible riches. I don't mean I'm keeping something from you. I mean <laughs> inexhaustible riches and joy to meditate on what it means that the body is for the Lord. In, the, in our human times, in our capital R romantic times, we think the body is for another human being. You know, Give myself fully to my beloved, to my soulmate, and they to us. And God's like, <coughs> no. <laughs> no. That's, at, at, at its absolute best, at its absolute best, that is a tiny, tiny glimpse of what the body is really made for, which is being united with God. And then united, being united with the fullness of humanity in a, in, a, in a oneness that we can't even comprehend right now. It's almost like the Song of Solomon with all that stuff it's talking about. Yes, the fulfillment of the Song of Solomon. Exactly right, which is why it's a wedding feast. Yeah. Yeah. Much could be said on that. I'm glad you brought that up. But yeah, it just jogs my memory once more. The Song of Solomon was used very heavily in the early church in terms of its catechesis. Um, because you're trying to describe to people what is the mystery of being a Christian? What is the mystery of Holy Communion? What is the, the mystery of being betrothed to Christ? And then the final marriage feast of the Lamb and His kingdom, which has no end. They, they said, well, we've got a handbook for that. <laughs> it's called the Song of Solomon. Yeah. All right. Well, we've got beautiful theology to meditate on here. Just wonderful. So back to the point, though. Uh, scares laying the foundation for us. Um, Again, found in the large catechism, certainly founded at least in part upon Romans 6 type baptismal theology, the dying and rising of baptism, and that even the act of the washing away, the water, the water is washing away or putting something away, not the dirt of the body, but the sins that, that uh, you know, stain our conscience. And with that washing away, there's a drowning of the old Adam. And then the converse of all of that's true. As there's a drowning of the old Adam, there's a rising of the new man up out of the waters and a clean conscience and a right spirit before God. All right. Scare continues then right after the quoting Luther. The value of the atonement is placed by the New Testament in the moment of the cross and not in the life or resurrection of Jesus. Right. When the New Testament talks in terms of the language of atonement or propitiation, it is always talking about the cross. It's not talking about the life of Jesus. It's not talking about the resurrection of Jesus. So that's a, that's a great point to bring out. This, by the way, too, is why 99.9% .9 of churches um, have, have a crucifix uh, at, the, at the center rather than a, a resurrected Jesus. Now, you've, you've probably seen some rare examples, but they're quite modern in general where you have this resurrected Jesus at the center. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it as such, but the liturgical language is that the atonement is at the heart and center, and at the heart and center of the atonement is the cross. All right. Well, this is Scare's observation, so let's... Pastor, yes, sir. resurrected Jesus wouldn't have his arms out Well, it depends. I think in most, in most depictions, I could be wrong on this. 
But in most depictions, especially like I'm thinking of like statuary or carvings or that kind of thing, uh, the resurrected Jesus is usually picked with arms ascended. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, or with arms lifted, I mean, be, sorry. What I mean, they're not nailed to the cross. Uh, right, correct, yeah. correct, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, somewhere between the two, somewhere between the resurrection and the crucifixion, you have this sort of artwork where Jesus looks quite alive and well, and in fact, even in some instances, reigning while being crucified. And I think that that's not to be rejected out of hand. I think that that's probably quite expressive of, of John's gospel. In John's gospel, the concept of humiliation and glorification are jammed into one. In John's gospel, the humiliation and the glorification are one. My analogy for that is always um, when a dad does something menial or, you know, for his children, um, is he humbling himself humiliating himself, you know, in that sense, yes, but in that is the glory of being a father. I use the example of my dad who, like, went plowing into the lake after a trout that I was about to lose, you know, <laughs> so he could net it for me. I mean, in a sense, that's like, it's like, why did you, why did you do that? Why did you descend below? But precisely in des descending below his honor as a father, he shows his father fatherly heart most brilliantly and gloriously, and I'll never forget it. And that is my perpetual, you know, like, idea of the humiliation and the glorification are one. Um, and that's, that's John's way of looking at it. It's not really the synoptic way of looking at it. Uh, so, so, yeah, this... Uh, anyway, I got so into my story, I forgot the point. <laughs> Sorry about that, Bob. Yeah, what would the resurrected Jesus look like as opposed to the crucified? Yeah, yeah, and then I was talking about the... Thank you. I was, yeah, so, so where, where Christ is, appears kingly and alive and reigning from the cross, you just have sort of a blurring of yeah. this imagery... Otherwise, you have the, the crucified Christ, very much more common in the West, uh, like in our sanctuary, where you really have the atonement motif and the suffering of Christ, that motif. Um, but it's, it's quite rare, it's quite rare, at least to the best of my knowledge, that you would have front and center a resurrection motif. Very rare. It does, it does happen from time to time, but more so in like... Uh, you know, sort of frescoes and um, that kind of, like the thing you'd find on the wall, you know. Yes, sir? So many of the Protestant uh, or, or um, reform background yeah. would have the corpus um, gone mm. to symbolize the resurrection of Christ. Yes, yes. Thank you. That's a great point. So, yeah, Dr. Park brings up the point that um, the tradition of the empty cross, so to speak, without a corpus, without a body on it, is often said to emphasize the, uh, the resurrection. It's not without some Lutheran critique. I mean, well, again, there's nothing wrong. We don't want to... I mean, who cares about all this stuff, ultimately, right? I mean, you can have a church without it. You can have Christ without it. But, but given then that it's audiophora, given then that it's audiophora, given that it's a thing indifferent we can still then have room to talk about what's the best expression of Christianity and particularly the heart of Christianity. And an empty cross, um, the cr I mean, the cross still is the instrument of torture. To me, it's still inescapably atonement. And, it, and as a symbol of the resurrection, it even doesn't make that much sense because there were three empty crosses that day. And there was an empty cross when they took him down from the cross and put him in the tomb, and he was dead, and there was no resurrection. So, uh, yeah, I... Th I 
I tend to think that what, what really is going on there is we don't like the corpus, we don't like Christ crucified, although we don't want to say that. So we take that off, try to sanitize it with just the cross, and then we go looking for a rationale. <laughs> oh, that's the resurrection. No, if you were really sitting there truly objectively thinking about a symbol of the resurrection, you'd either have Jesus standing like this, or you'd have uh, an open tomb, um, or, or maybe in some of like the Eastern iconography, um, you would have uh, you know, an icon of, of Jesus uh, pulling the saint, uh, arisen and pulling the saints up out of, uh, out of the graves or, <laughs> or out of hell, as <laughs> the case may be. Um, so anyway, anyway, we're all, we're all aside from the point here, but when we think about Iafra, um, the cross, the crucifix, the, the cross with the corpus on it, the atonement go hand in hand. And, and that's simply a reflection of this deeper New Testament reality, which is not Adiaphora, that the atonement and the cross go hand in hand. Not the atonement in the life of Jesus, not the atonement in the resurrection of Jesus. Those are parts, but the atonement proper is the passion, the suffering of Jesus and his crucifixion. Make sense? All right. Yes, sir. Going back to that same, you know, same issue, back in those days, I remember, for me, in my case, it does not remind me that what Jesus actually did, what he did for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very well said. Yeah, the very common Reformed or American Evangelical viewpoint on a crucifix and why we don't have one is, well, Jesus isn't dead anymore. He's, a, he's risen. Of course, what that discounts is that Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him risen. Crucified. No, Christ and him crucified. So we'll take Paul on that point and keep our crucifix. Yeah, yeah it's just fine. Um, also, to it, even in Revelation, as is, is great as Revelation, I mean, and to some degree you have this in Christian art where you see the resurrect, a statue of the resurrected Jesus or something. He's, he still has the nail marks in his hand. But even more, even more uh, viscerally in Revelation, Christ is depicted as the lamb who stands and yet as one having been slain. So even in the resurrected Christ, there's this reminder of his wounds. This too makes everybody uncomfortable when... Um, especially in the art that depicts this scene. But remember when Jesus says, uh, here, Thomas, put your, put your fingers here in my hand, put your hand here in my side, and everybody gets a little squeamish, you know. But it's like the same thing. The risen one is also and remains the crucified one. When he comes back, it's not like the nail holes disappeared and the spear hole disappeared, and he says, here I am, I conquered that, the cross was embarrassing, and now it's over. Which is kind of quite frequently the evangelical American take. is like the cross was this embarrassing thing that had to happen. Thank God that's over. Let's never think about it again. Whereas the whole biblical way of thinking is, I, I mean, again, revelation. When you get to heaven, it's the lamb crucified and standing before the throne. The whole biblical thing is, no, the crucifixion is the center. It's to be dwelled on. It's to be meditated on. I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. It's an entirely different spirituality than... Ah, Good Friday's over. Thank God. That was embarrassing and terrible. We never want to think about it again. Out we go. Um, biblical theology knows nothing of that, and therefore Lutheran theology knows nothing about that. Christ at the center. Christ crucified at the center. All right, well, let's mosey a little further in scare here. So once more, once more, just so we don't lose the, uh, the forest for the trees, the value of the atonement is placed by the New Testament in the moment of the cross and not in the life or resurrection 
of Jesus. The Son of Man gives his life in death as a ransom for many. And the foundation of the apostolic message is that Jesus died for sins. Maybe in our day of radical Lutheranism infiltrating everything, we ought to recite that again. The foundation of the apostolic message is that Jesus died for sins. Again, this is a point that many of the radical Lutherans reject today. This does not mean that the resurrection is unnecessary for salvation or that it is only a symbol that God has accepted Jesus' death as satisfactory. Understanding the resurrection's purpose and function as only symbol made it possible for Tillich to fuse the crucifixion and the resurrection into one event with the shared common meaning that in the death of Christ, God still lives. Oh, that's terrible, isn't it? That's terrible. So the, so the resurrection for Tillich is that even though Jesus has died, he still exists as God. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. With teachers like this, who needs heretics? So we're going to critique Tillich a little later with scare. Next to Boltman, next paragraph, Boltman, Rudolf Boltman. Of course, you remember both these guys. They're indicative of the, the spirit of our times. Boltman, who regarded the resurrection as legend, saw in it, quote, a way of understanding the cross that would surmount, yes, transform the scandal of the curse which in Jewish opinion had befallen the crucified Jesus, end quote. He, that is Boltman, places the origin of both the Easter faith and the empty tomb, not in Jesus' preaching, but in a decision of the church, which he is not able to locate. <laughs> ah, you have to have a sense of humor when it comes to theology. You'll either laugh or cry. Okay, well, we can see the error of Tillich and Boltman here. Scare continues, the assertion is made that the empty grave of Jesus has no part in the early church proclamation. For all four evangelists, the refrain, he is risen, provides the explanation for the empty tomb. The one who is raised according to the scriptures is the same one who was buried. The crucifixion and the resurrection are distinct from each other, both as historical events, contra Boltman and Tillich. Again, they don't see the resurrection as a historical event. That's the point. And in, the, and in their significance. Okay, so they're distinct as historical events and they're distinct in, regarding, in regard to their significance. This distinction is made by Paul for whom, quote, Jesus our Lord was put to death for our trespasses, and raised for our justification, end quote, Romans 4.25. By Jesus' death, sins are removed, and by the resurrection, God declares the world justified. So you can see a distinction made there. I think that's Scare's point. Redemption and justification are distinct moments for God. The resurrection was, however, not an autonomous and self-contained event, but dependent on the crucifixion for its significance. 
I mean, in a very real sense, in a very simple sense, you can't rise unless you die. <laughs> but, even, but even the fullness of the resurrection can't happen unless there's the fullness of the atonement first. Right? A new world can't be given to sinful human beings. Communion, can't be given, communion with God can't be given to sinful human beings unless their sins are first forgiven. Death can't be undone unless sin is first forgiven, and then death can be undone, etc. So these two, these two things go together. And in a very real sense, uh, the theological sense, the resurrection is contingent upon the cross, upon the, upon the atonement being made. Because once more, the resurrection of Jesus is not merely his resurrection, but ultimately the resurrection of all creation. Next paragraph on page 97, the first full one. Jesus' first formal announcement of his death also included the promise of his resurrection. Both events, his death and resurrection, are considered necessary by Christ. The Greek word de, signifying divine compulsion, de just is usually translated as uh, necessary, right? It is necessary. Um, by divine compulsion is used to describe both his being put to death and his rising from the dead. In other words, both are necessary. <clears throat> Luke is the one gospel which in the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus picks up on the idea of divine necessity for Christ's glorification subsequent to his suffering. Now, quoting from Luke 24, verse 26, was it not necessary day for Christ to suffer and to enter his glory? This divine necessity finds its prior expression in the Old Testament scriptures. The resurrection as a necessary event can be understood from the perspectives of God himself, Jesus, and fallen man. The necessity of the resurrection belongs not simply to the general providence of God, whereby he governs and determines creation, but to a special will which governs both Christ's death and resurrection. And Scare has a reference here for Acts 2.23. It is simply not the case that God, through the prophets, has predicted that something would happen, and then out of the requirements of such a covenant, he is required to fulfill the terms. The resurrection is an historical event, but it is not one event among other events. Rather, it is the event through which God gives significance to all other events. That's such a great line. That's such a great line. The resurrection is the event through which God gives significance to all other events. That's the whole book of Ecclesiastes right there in one sentence. If Jesus is not raised, if there is no resurrection then it was all meaningless. And it is all, is, present tense, meaningless. Because it all dies with us in death. It is remembered no more. And the extraordinary argument Solomon makes in this regard all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. So, uh, 
without an atoning death, without a transcendent resurrection by which there is a new heavens and a new earth, um, this life is rendered meaningless. But on account of those things, everything we do is filled with eternal meaning. Even a cup of cold water given to a little child in the name of Jesus cannot and will not lose its reward. And as Revelation plainly says, all our works follow us. That's good news in Revelation. It means all our sins are cleansed. And God takes the best, most charitable view of our lives and brings all of that in with. And, which is this, also this beautiful thing that there's this continuity. The Bible is even more sparing on details in regard to this. But there is a continuity between this world and the world which is to come. Uh, again, it's not, it's not like he says, uh, this world's going to perish and then I'm going to have you all be on Mars. Now, it's not, it's not the old earth and a new Venus that we're all going, but it's a old earth and a new earth. It's a new heavens and a new earth. There's going to be continuity that's analogous to the continuity we have with our bodies. It's still going to be us, but it's going to be us brand new. It's still going to be the world, but it's going to be the world brand new. And in that sense, there is an organic continuity between the actions we do here. Um, and we don't understand this. Very hard to understand. But our works follow us. There's a continuity between the actions we do here and the new heavens and the new earth. I think Paul hints at that, of course, when he calls his congregation his crown, his heavenly crown. When he gets into heaven, he's not so much waiting for this moment where God actually plunks a seven-pound crown on his head. Okay? He's waiting for this moment when he sees the members of his congregation there. That's heaven. That makes heaven more wonderful than if they weren't there. Right? Is Paul still in heaven under either circumstance? Do a little thought experiment with me. Paul's still in heaven enjoying the fullness thereof, but without his congregation. Paul's enjoying heaven and the fullness thereof with his congregation. You are my crown. And the same thing is true here insofar as we help the brothers and sisters and, and live not for ourselves but for others. All of that comes with us, and our joy is made all the more full, all the more abundant. Oh, it's wonderful. So again, everything's filled, with, everything's filled with meaning. Everything's filled with everlasting meaning. There's continuity. There's an organic uh, union. So the resurrection is the event through which God gives significance to all other events. Love that. Love that line. Scare continues. The resurrection of the one man, Jesus, has universal significance a New Testament theme endorsed by Pannenberg, who himself has some problems, of course, but he's uh, a lot better than <laughs> Tillich, Boltman, etc. The universal resurrection of the dead and the judgment are imminent. Here, quoting from Pannenberg, the universal resurrection of the dead and the judgment are imminent. Though man... The sinner sees the cross as the solution for his dilemma brought about by the impossibility of making his own satisfaction to God for sins. God sees the cross, first of all, as the ultimate vindication of his cause against Satan. There is a lot to ponder on here. There is a lot to ponder on here. Argument, Job. 
Right. Yeah, the argument in Job is like a, a tiny little symptom or aspect of this bigger thing. So again, this is it's kind of this, on the one hand, as sinful human beings, we see the cross as being mostly about God making satisfaction for our sins that so we can be saved. And that's true. There's to take absolutely nothing away from that. But what scares asserting here is the other side of the coin is from God's perspective, it has first and foremost to do with Satan and crushing him and thereby restoring us, which it perfectly accords with Genesis. The first gospel is preached, not strictly speaking, directly to man, but rather to Satan. The seed of the woman's going to crush your head. I, I've preached on this a few times. I should do it more often, that we're not quite the center of the universe we think we are. And that's wonderful and beautiful and lovely because God's real beef is with the devil and he wants the devil gone. And the angels, of course, are all highly invested. I mean, the angels care about us not only because they care about God and care about God's creation. I mean, that's absolutely true. But the angels also care about us so much and care about our salvation so much because if it was one of their own that screwed it up. <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, that's why I can only imagine the great, great, great pleasure St. Michael and the other angels had when they finally got to clean house. I mean, it's the same pleasure we're going to have on the last day when, he, when Satan is finally kicked out of his last stronghold. He's been kicked out of, seven, or out of heaven, Revelation 12. He's going to be kicked out of the earth, and on that day, we will all be, uh, we will all be rejoicing. That's what, that's what Paul's getting at in Romans where he says, and the God of peace will crush him under your feet as well. So... What a, glorious, what a glorious day that'll be. Yeah, so, so from God's perspective, the cross is first and foremost not merely about saving human beings, but about crushing the serpent's head and thereby saving human beings. So I think Scare's right on here because he's just doing Genesis, the, Genesis 3 theology. All right. So, though man, the sinner, sees the cross as the solution for his dilemma brought about by the impossibility of making his own satisfaction to God for sins, God sees the cross, first of all, as the ultimate vindication of his cause against Satan. With the cross, God has removed Satan in his role as adversary against the divine plan to redeem man. And scare here cites, or references, I mean, Revelation 12.10. Scare continues, God is characterized as the living one who gives life and Satan as the one who brings death to all mankind through sin. Since with the cross, God has removed Satan and his power which brought death to all, the causes of death have been removed, and there must be a resurrection. Again, this is a rather profound statement because there's any number of ways you can take with this, but that the atonement of Christ is so complete. That's one way to view it. The defeat of Satan is so complete that neither Satan nor sin nor death have any claim whatsoever on the world. Therefore, every single person on the last day is raised. Therefore, the entire heavens and earth are made new. It's the general resurrection. The people that go to hell are the people who don't want to participate in that, who have rejected Christ and his work and his new creation. And they've said, no, we like the old creation better. We like Satan better. To which God says, okay, fine, you can have him then. You can have, you can have the fallenness and the sin and the death forever. That's what we call the eternal death. Right? Um, but no, so universal, so complete is God's work. So great is his his victory and his vindication 
of his own creative purposes over and against Satan, his destructive purposes, that, that a brand new creation is coming forth no matter what, and the resurrection of all flesh is happening no matter what. It can't be stopped anymore. It's such a beautiful thing. And we'll all see it with our eyes. I mean, it's very hard to conceive of these days with our freeways and cell phones and everything else, but this is all going to happen, I assure you. So once more from scarce, since with the cross God has removed Satan and his power, which brought death to all, the causes of death have been removed, and there must be a resurrection. Scare continues, in light of the creation to which God has committed himself. <clears throat> I love that language because it shows that God has committed himself to it from the beginning. And just because Satan ruined it and we helped ruin it doesn't mean that God is any less committed. <laughs> in God's mind, nope, it's still going to happen no matter the cost. I'm going to create this beautiful, wonderful thing, these beautiful, wonderful creatures where I can shower upon them my blessings for all eternity and they can enjoy my gifts and benefits for all eternity. I'm going to do this. It, nothing's going to get in my way. Not Satan, not unbelief, not sin, not death. It's all going to be undone. My purposes will not be thwarted. I will be good to all of these. Scare continues, just as God was compelled to redeem his children, both by his love for his rational creatures and by his honor in defending them against the claim of Satan, so by that same inner compulsion, he must bring Jesus from the dead. I love that, I love that language and use of necessity with God. He must because that's simply his character. That's exactly right. That's where God actually cannot do something. He cannot lie because it's against his character. He must save us in Christ Jesus and redeem us because of his character. That's a beautiful way of thinking. It's a biblical way of thinking, not a philosophical way of thinking. He must bring Jesus from the dead. Scare continues. We do not wish to impose on God our human ideas of what he must and must not do. We simply recognize God's activities by which he has bound himself to the resurrection of his son. The righteousness of God demands the resurrection of Jesus since all of God's claims against mankind for retributive death have been absorbed in the death of Christ. God's, or excuse me, God's righteousness comes to expression no less perfectly in Jesus' resurrection than it does in his death. Two sides of the same coin in that respect. Christ's death and Christ's resurrection are both the perfect expressions of God's fundamental righteousness. The essence here of his character, like who he is. He's the father willing to pay the highest price for our redemption. He's the father who brings forth the victory and the new creation for us all. Scare continues, the resurrection of Jesus according to the scriptures... 1 Corinthians 15.4. And remember, with the way Paul's using this, that's the Old Testament scriptures. The resurrection of Jesus according to the Old Testament scriptures involves more than God's demonstration that he fulfills his word. Sometimes you get this really truncated, radical Lutheran theology of like, God keeps his promises, as if that's all there was to it. No, it's, more, it's, it's more than that. We have room to be critical of that kind of superficial treatment. Which is true in and of itself, it's just superficial. 
Scare continues, for the scriptures have perfectly revealed God's desire to save mankind. Thus, the resurrection is neither simply an event which happened, nor merely the act of an all-powerful God desiring to express his sovereign will, which would be sort of like just the promise keeping. Well, I said it, so I guess I'm going to do it. But the final expression of what it means to call God life and the one who makes alive. Reference to John 5, 21 through 29. Yeah, exactly. We find out, and Luther grasped this so well. It was a strange and dreadful strife when life and death con contended. The victory remained with life. The reign of death was ended. Glorious, glorious. Because these aren't life and death in abstract terms. We realize that God is life. Satan is death. All right, my friends. Hopefully you enjoyed that section as much as I did. Let's, uh, let's simply stop there. Oh, wait, did I finish it? Let me read the last sentence. The idea of the necessity of the resurrection is clear in Peter's first sermon. Here, quoting Peter. But God raised him up, having loosed the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Acts 2.24. Oh, I'm glad we finished that there. It's great. Let's pick up there next week. And, oh, housekeeping. We will finish this, we will finish this chapter on... on uh, resurrection, and no matter what, we will finish the book. Whether we finish it or not, we will finish the book next week. So if you haven't procured uh, your book by Chrysostom, uh, you should, um, because we will, we will hit that not next Thursday, but the Thursday after, God willing. All right. The Lord be with you.